Well, good morning, men. It's a joy to be with you this morning as we discuss and talk about a gospel man and his work. So let's pray and ask for a blessing on our time together. Father, we rejoice that uh, you have given us this time this morning, that you have given us life in Christ, and you have given us physical life, Lord, and much of that life is composed of our time in the workplace. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us today about how we might use that for your glory uh, and for the blessing of those we work with, as well as providing for our families. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin with the first recorded instance in Scripture of God working. So we see in Genesis chapter 1 that God created the heavens and the earth and all that was in them. And what he described that creative work as was being very good. And when God says something is very good, uh, that means a couple of things to us. It means that, one, it brings glory to him, and it also is fully satisfying to him. And so we here at Desert Springs are often saying things like, uh, this brings glory to God, and it brings blessings to man. And so God's gift of work does both of those things. And so when he created the world, not only was it satisfying to him and glorifying him, but it was also for the purpose of blessing man. For the purpose of the created world was that man would inhabit it and do something with it. Only God could create something from nothing. But man was created for the purpose of developing and creating something from what God had already made. So we see in Genesis 2 a relationship between the created world and the purpose of man. In Genesis 2, 2 through 3, we read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So we see in this a rhythm of work and rest. Now you will know that uh, God would not have been physically exhausted from his creative work. That applies to man, but not God. So he's talking about a contemplative rest here, a rest where he considers all that he has made and considered it to be very good and what man might do with it, creatively speaking. And so man's role then was made in God's image to rule over the created world. And his rulership would have vast dimensions because Adam was created for the purpose of naming all that God had um, placed on the planet in terms of livestock, in terms of living creatures, in terms of animals. He would get to name them all. His authority would be supreme. He would rule over the created world. In addition to that, he would also be a farmer, a gardener, a cultivator, a developer. Uh, The variety of things that God had in mind for Adam to do uh, is just really beyond our imagination. And it's worth spending a few minutes just to dwell on what the nature of that workplace might have looked like. We see in Genesis 2, 19 through 20, where God placed Adam. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of heaven, and to the beasts of the field. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So think about this place uh, of Eden. It would be a place of productivity. 
it would be a place of perfection. The climate was perfect. The ground was perfect. The watering system was perfect. And there were no conflicts. There was one will in the universe, and that was the Lord God Almighty. And as long as Adam submitted to God's will, he would enjoy the blessings of this perfect workplace. And so if you can imagine what it would have been like for the earth to yield its fruit under those kinds of conditions, uh, it must have been glorious to see something that we can't possibly imagine. And it was only actually known to Adam and Eve because after they fell and the curse of sin was effective, no other generation ever got to see that kind of productivity. And so it must have been something very, very special. And we don't know how long those conditions really existed because there's no clear way for us to tell uh, when Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God and pursue their own independent will. We imagine it wasn't that long because there's no record of their progeny or their children uh, before the curse of sin took place. Uh, So it may have been not such a long period of time. So this is the first workplace, not something that we're familiar with, but it's an example Uh, that God has purposed for work to be a dominant activity in the life of man. And so it was with Adam and Eve. However, all that came to a screeching halt after a period of time in which more than one will appeared in the universe. First there was Satan, who was the tempter, and then there was Eve, who succumbed to the temptation, and then there was Adam, who followed his wife in that same sin. And they rebelled against God, exercising their own self-legislating will instead of continuing to obey and enjoy the blessings of God and all that he had promised them. The verse that I'm about to read is one of the most horrific verses in all of Scripture. As you hear it and feel it, uh, it could actually make your your skin crawl because of its severity and the lasting consequences. We see it in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, if that's not one of the most horrible passages in all of Scripture, I don't know what is. It was a curse of uh, incredible dimensions and consequences that we are experiencing today. And yet, even in the midst of this curse, God relented and could have done much more had he taken away the gift of work from Adam and Eve. He left work in their life as a primary activity, even though uh, it would be subject to being arduous, difficult, and painful. For if he had taken away work from mankind, he would have left mankind without an essential purpose for his existence. Because the purpose of his existence was to glorify God and enjoy the blessings that God had prepared for him. And so God in his graciousness did not remove work, but he made it much more difficult. And there would be a purpose in that difficulty. And that purpose would be a lament. Adam and Eve would lament the day that they rebelled against God and they would never forget uh, the day that they lost and the privileges that they lost because of their sin and because of their rebellion. 
That lament would pass on to subsequent generations. Adam lived 930-something years. Now, imagine how many generations he gave birth to over that period of time and how he was able to relate to them what the garden was like and what that existence must have been like. That would have been poured out into his generations and to his uh, kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and so on. Uh, so there would have been a, a global consciousness of the population that life was not <clears throat> what it should be, that it was harder and more difficult than it once was. And God would use that longing, that lament, uh, to create a desire for man to draw himself or to be drawn back to God. So the curse was there uh, <clears throat> as a consequence to rebellion. It was also there as a means of redemption. And in every generation since then, God would use the workplace as a means for us to be drawn to God for a better uh, and more effective and uh, more sin-free environment. So it was too early at this period of time for God to fully reveal how he would eventually deliver man from the curse and the world and the environment from that curse too because they would be inextricably linked together. The fallen world, the fallen man would coexist together. And it wouldn't be an indefinite sentence. It would be a sentence that one day God in his graciousness uh, would deliver both the environment and mankind from. However, it would be many generations before he would give a glimpse to the population of how he would do this. It would always be part of God's redemptive story that he would use work uh, to create um, a, a desire on the part of man to be restored and reconciled back to God. The Apostle Paul spoke of this very directly in Romans, the 8th chapter. Here's what he said. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So in this section where we're dealing with the corruption and the necessity of work, we see that the fallen world <clears throat> is a place um, <clears throat> that contains man's working effort and both <clears throat> man himself and the fallen environment would be linked together in an ultimate redemption that God would bring about in due course. And uh, we still don't know when that will take place, but we, knew that, we do know that God has given us a promise of a new heaven and a new earth and a new existence with him. And that is the hope that we have. For this workplace that we're involved in today has many benefits, but it also creates in us a longing for a better existence, and God has promised that to us. So this is then the, the workplace that we uh, live in today. It is, yes, it's been corrupted, uh, and yes, work is necessary, but it also uh, has significant blessings and benefits for us. And so our third point in the outline is that we need to look at work as an opportunity for the gifts and reward of work. There are many circumstances which cause us to be frustrated uh, in the workplace, but there are also many blessings if we will seek them. The wisdom books of literature, uh, the 
book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, where King Solomon wrote um, to the nation of Israel about the benefits and the blessings of work are worth noting for us today because they apply across the time. Proverbs 12, 11 and 14 says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. From the fruit of his mouth a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. And so we see from uh, this verse that work is essential for our existence. It gives us a dignity, it gives us an activity and an opportunity for us to meet our own needs and the needs of our dependents and to be a blessing on others. So the creative talents that God gives us are there to be used. And even though we live in a less than satisfactory uh, fallen world, the benefits of work is something that we should grasp and desire uh, and not do grudgingly. Another verse we should take note of is Proverbs 28, 19. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. So God has seen fit then uh, to give us a choice with regard to work. Uh, and that <coughs> choice should be to pursue it, to seek it, and to engage in it, and uh, not to avoid it, because the consequences of avoiding the God-given privilege of work will be a poverty of activity, a poverty of, uh, of means, and uh, a poverty of spirit. So work is a productive activity for all of us for all of those reasons. In 2 Thessalonians 3.10, we read, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So regardless of how difficult work is, it's still a necessary and desirable activity for us to engage in. Work would be hard, but it would also be beneficial. And to fully utilize the benefits and the wisdom and the rewards of work, uh, we need to have the right attitude. In the uh, book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher spoke of what is is a good, healthy attitude for a man to pursue with regard to his work. Here's what he said. Ecclesiastes 3, 17 through 19. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to enjoy, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So the preacher of Ecclesiastes saw work as a gift, not as a judgery, something to be enjoyed and something to be pursued with diligence. With disciplined work, uh, the fruit of a man's creativity uh, abounds. Not only is it uh, helpful for the meeting of our own needs and those of our dependents, but it also uh, is a a glory to God and a testimony in the workplace. We should rejoice in our work. We should not despise it. We should also fear and obey God for these 
is his command for us. In Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 19, it says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his light and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. So we might have many reservations about the nature of our work and it might have many frustrations and, and much difficulty. Uh, it also uh, is a gift of God. And when we adopt the attitude that work is a gift from God, it will transform the manner in which we tackle our jobs. And it will also impact the relationships that we have in the workplace. So think about these uh, wisdom verses from Scripture with regard to the attitude with which we wake up, roll out of bed, get in our car, and head off to the workplace every day because it makes all the difference in, t in terms of how we're going to conduct ourselves. Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. So committing one's works to the Lord is the idea of <clears throat> recognizing who we work for. We might have... Um, a company, a corporation, an individual, a proprietorship or a partnership as our earthly boss. But who are we really working for? We're working for the Lord himself because he has given authority uh, over all uh, manners of um, authorities in the world. And so our attitude would be different if we recognize that we work for God rather than for sinful men. And so what we would benefit by doing is every day <clears throat> thanking God for the opportunity of the work that he has given us and thinking of our workplace as an observable arena in which all of heaven was looking down to see how we conducted ourselves. We're all men <clears throat> that uh, have difficulty rising to our best level. And when we're accountable, when we're observable, we tend to do better. It's just a natural human trait. So when we think of ourselves as being observed by heaven in terms of what we're doing in our workplace, this will be a driving motivator in the effort uh, and the quality of the work that we produce. And so these attitudes are helpful um, rather than just assuming uh, that another day of drudgery lies ahead of us when we head to the workplace. Attitude has so much to do with how we perform in the workplace and God's blessing on it. So our fourth point then, when we talk about the nature of work in the outline, uh, some of the historical views of work that have developed over time. So when Israel was a nation and uh, King Solomon was speaking wisdom and um, the nation uh, reached the furthermost point of its inherited territory by God, um, these verses made a difference in the national life of Israel and the culture and the productivity which Israel enjoyed was superior to that of the surrounding nations. And it was superior because they were employing God's principles and God's attitude in the conduct of their work. But this changed over time. And um, <clears throat> after the Lord came and he lived and he died and he was resurrected, uh, about 40 years after that, Israel <clears throat> was sacked by the Roman Empire and everything changed in the life of Israel. The temple was uh, destroyed and melted down 
thousands of captives were taken out of Jerusalem and marched back to Rome. The wealth of the temple was an instrumental funding of the Colosseum in the city of Rome. And the men and women that were taken captive from Israel and marched back to Rome became fodder uh, for the gladiators in the Colosseum. It was a sad picture indeed that God allowed this to take place. And yet in his redemptive plan, he would use uh, the presence of um, the church in Rome uh, to transform the Roman Empire and all the countries that it comprised. And so by the time that the Roman Empire had spread across all of Western Europe, um, it was becoming Christianized to the point where the Roman Emperor Constantine declared Christianity to be the official religion of Rome. And when he did that, uh, a a new culture developed uh, in the life of the Roman Empire because as the, the church flourished within the Roman Empire, the Roman Catholicism um, levied a grip and a control over these uh, countries uh, that became very hierarchical um, and very uh, negative in terms of its attitude to work. What happened was that there was a dichotomy of secular and sacred work that developed. As bishops began being appointed in different cities across Rome, and then archbishops in major cities, and then finally the papacy, the church had developed into a hierarchy, and those that found employment in the church, the the clergy, they were considered to be a, a higher class of work, a more sacred type of work than regular work. And this was never the intention of God to have this kind of secular, sacred dichotomy. As a result of that, those who did not work in the church tended uh, to be less educated and from uh, less so-called noble backgrounds. Uh, Most children of the the noble class and those of the educated class found their way into ministry because that was the most desirable uh, occupation, to be in the clergy or to be in the courts, the noble courts and the ruling courts uh, across these countries. So as Catholicism continued to solidify its group, its grip rather on church life, this very unwelcome development about work took place. And it wasn't until much later uh, that things started to change. Around the 11th century, the Roman Catholic Church instituted uh, the advent, I guess, of celibacy is what you would call it. And so that in order to work in the church, um, one was required to take a vow of celibacy in the priesthood. And that was a mark at the time uh, of esteem. If one took a vow of celibacy and devoted himself uh, to uh, clerical work in the life of the church, uh, that was considered to be sacred work. Uh, And those that worked outside the church was considered to be secular. This was the hallmark of the medieval church. And this is what developed a very negative trend. And that's why it's oftentimes called the medieval era because those who worked in the church often abused uh, those that worked outside the church because there was a sense of superiority and nobility and entitlement for those that worked in the church. None of this was from God. It was all from man. And it created this period of time known as the medieval church era. So that didn't change until uh, the Reformation began in the 16th century. 
And thanks to the early reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin, among others, things started to change as these men saw Scripture and then they saw the example of how the church was teaching uh, indulgences and how it was abusing Scripture and abusing the people, uh, the reformers began to preach uh, what the true church should look like and what the, the, the Scriptures said about the nature of work. Martin Luther went so far as to say this about the priesthood and entering into it. He said, therefore, I advise no one to enter any religious order or priesthood unless he is forearmed with this knowledge and understands that the works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks, but that all works are measured before God by faith alone. This was such a refreshing change of pace with regard to an attitude to work, uh, that it was embraced by the citizenry and the people and the reformers gained great following as they continued to preach scripture about what it had to say about the workplace and the nobility of all honest work. So uh, 30 years later, John Calvin came on the scene and uh, he spoke also about the nobility of work. He even went so far as to say and uh, talk about job mobility Job mobility was not a thing known uh, in the medieval era. If you were born into a laboring family, you stayed in a laboring family. If you were in an agricultural family, that's where you spent your life. But Calvin recognizing that God's giftedness could create um, a change in behavior and productivity and occupation gave um, permission, if you will, for those who would seek a better type of work and pay the price uh, to be successful in it uh, would have a welcome result. This was new and creative and full of opportunity uh, for those that would uh, listen to the reformers. And as this cry of the priesthood of all believers spread across the Roman Empire, things began to change dramatically in the workplace, uh, much for the better. And so as the medieval era gave way to the Reformation era, we saw a transformation of the workplace. Uh, and it was for the good. We see that um, in addition to the historical views of work, that fourth point in the outline, that uh, certain developments started to take place with regard to uh, new developments in the workplace. So the fifth point in your outline is two extremes to avoid. So <clears throat> work was not an ultimate satisfaction nor was it a necessary evil. They were two wrong views of work. Because after the Reformation took place, the Industrial Revolution began about two centuries later. Around the 18th century, the Industrial Revolution started to change the workplace in very interesting ways. Whole new um, methods of manufacturing started developing, which created new occupations, new variety, and new opportunities. People who had previously not been able to escape the occupation to which they were born were able to go to trade guilds and learn a trade and uh, elevate their status in the workplace and increase their standard of living. Uh, as a result of that, <clears throat> there are two unwelcome developments that would take place uh, in the industrial age. One was to view work as an idol. Uh, work could easily become idolatry. 
and that is that people would seek to gain their ultimate satisfaction from their work instead of from their relationship with God. This was one of the extremes to avoid is idolatry. Uh, For some Christians, the pursuit of wealth and success became an idol. Uh, And anything that becomes our ultimate satisfaction um, is the very definition of an idol. And this affects our workplace even today. In our culture and in our nation, uh, the society encourages us to seek ultimate success and even to identify ourselves by the nature of our work. None of that is from God or none of it is uh, biblically justifiable. But it is easy to do because our society encourages it. However, if we seek ultimate satisfaction in our work, the end result of that is just a joylessness and an emptiness because material wealth will never satisfy and it will separate us from the God that we love and the God that we need. We see an example of that when Jesus uh, confronted the rich young ruler in the book of uh, Luke chapter 18. If you'll remember that account, what happened was the rich young ruler asked the Lord, what he needed to do to be saved. And he claimed that he was doing all the religious works required of him. And then Jesus, noting his idolatry, said to him in uh, Luke 18, 22, let me read that for you. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he, the rich man, heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus, knowing the heart of this man, knew that he worshipped wealth. And he didn't worship the true God. And so when Jesus said to him, come and follow me and give away your wealth, he became sad because he valued his wealth more than the Lord himself. And this is something that can affect every single one of us, is that we can easily substitute our satisfaction in the material life as opposed to a rich relationship in Jesus Christ. So we are to be rich towards Christ and balanced in our approach Uh, to the goals that we seek and the meaning that we seek and the satisfaction that we seek in the workplace. So that is one of the two extremes to avoid as we live in this modern era of employment. The other extreme is the very opposite, and that is idleness. Uh, Idleness we can see in a a number of verses in Scripture, um, and it, it is a temptation for all of us because when work is not easy, as it often is, Uh, we have a tendency to want to shun it and to find something less demanding and less arduous. We see in Proverbs 16, the verse that talks about that, where it says, commit your way to the Lord and your plans will be established. Um, That's uh, Proverbs 16.3. We also see in um, uh, another uh, verse from uh, Proverbs that talks about the importance of a healthy attitude to productive work. In Proverbs 28:19, we see whoever works with his hands uh, <clears throat> and works the land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. So these two extremes of idolatry and, and idleness uh, are to be avoided. 
there's a balance between the two that we need to seek. And in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, uh, we see uh, Paul then talking about idleness. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So um, today, just like it was in the first century um, of uh, the Christian era, we see that work has a temptation for us to take it to an extreme. And whether we uh, pursue one of those extremes, we do so uh, at our disservice and it is uh, not honoring to God. So we want to make sure that we look at idleness and idolatry as something to avoid uh, and seek a healthy attitude uh, towards our approach to work and all its benefits. So as we see then that all work is noble when it's done for Christ and not for men, uh, and we see that our attitude would change as God would observe us and we would see ourselves as being observed and accountable in the workplace, then we should examine what our relationships and our testimony at work should be. So the sixth and final point on the outline is our relationships and testimony at work. Now it's been said that if a man works no more than 40 hours a week and he were to, say, retire at age 65, he would spend over 80,000 hours in the workplace. So that's 80,000 hours of relationships with people that you work with every day. That's more time than we spend with our family. It's more time than we spend with our kids, our spouse, uh, our relatives, and our friends. So relationships at work have a tremendous potential to be impacted by virtue of the amount of time that we spend with our coworkers, our bosses, our employees, and our associates. So we should look at uh, these relationships as opportunities for gospel proclamation. This is the key for us, is to recognize that God has put us in a place that's uniquely opportunistic for us. It may be that we're the only Christian witness in a person's life in our workplace, uh, and that if we recognize that, we should be seeking opportunities for us uh, to develop relationships, and those relationships are the bridges by which the gospel will travel. Now, we're all subject to rules and regulations about what we can say in the workplace, and they must be respected. Uh, however, the opportunity for developing relationships and friendships that can then lead to conversations outside the workplace is almost limitless. And so it would be a poor excuse to say, well, I'm not allowed to uh, share my faith in the workplace, therefore I won't even try. That would be a defeatist and negative attitude not to pursue. Of course, the friendships that we can make in the workplace um, have almost limitless application uh, when we get together on our private time. Um, <clears throat> those opportunities abound and should not be ignored or discounted. So the difficulty oftentimes that we have with regard to work is it's more about our lack of love for our fellow co-workers and our lack of seeing ourselves as an ambassador for Christ in the workplace that affects and, and controls our, our desire and our time spent in wanting to share the gospel with others. Uh, there's a familiar passage in Scripture, Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1, that I'll read. And this verse has a lot to say about what we should do with regard to our relationships in the workplace. Bondservants, that's us, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 
Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So two things to consider here is relationships with bosses and bosses' relationships with employees and then workers' relationships with co-workers. This verse in Colossians talks about how uh, our earthly masters are to be respected, uh, are to, um, if there are bosses, uh, they're to be obeyed and they're to... we're to, su- we're to uh, seek their success, if you will. So a man will stand out in the workplace if he voluntarily seeks to do his best work and is willing to serve those who employ him as a higher priority than meeting his own needs. Such a person will stand out in the workplace and have an opportunity uh, to be able to share what it is that motivates him and drives him towards such excellence. So as we think about the opportunity to share our faith in the workplace and the relationships that we should have, a lot of that will spill over into the attitude that we have in our work. We will have a greater audience and a greater receptivity when we're pursuing and seeking the benefit of those that we work for. Also with regard to our co-workers, when we treat them with respect, when we uh, seek for ways to help them and to bless them, and when we build friendships with our friends in the workplace. We also earn the right then to share our lives with them. And so as we see the people that we, we work with and spend time with every single day, uh, these are the people that God has placed around us for gospel proclamation purposes. And as we take that seriously, no doubt God will provide opportunities for us to share our faith with them. And then many of us are bosses in this room and we have employees. And scripture says a lot about how we should treat our employees. We should treat them with fairness, with compassion, and even when discipline is required, it should be done justly and fairly. Uh, All employers have uh, an awareness or should have an awareness that God himself has authority over them and they should take that same um, godly authority and measure that in their relationships with their employees so that not only do they seek the productivity that employees produce, but they also seek the welfare of those employees that work for them. So these are some of the things that can take place when we um, recognize that uh, our relationships are a testimony in the workplace. When Paul was um, ministering and traveling across um, the globe in, in church planting, he ran into a a runaway slave. And this was um, the account of Onesimus. And that slave had um, left his, uh, he was an indentured servant. He had left his employer illegally and irresponsibly. And Paul encouraged him to go back and honor his obligation to his employer. And to the employer, he said, treat this man now with the respect that a brother in Christ deserves. Uh, And so these are the two things that are important in the workplace is respect um, for those who we work with and a recognition that God is working in the life of every single person that he has surrounded us with 
and they represent opportunities for us. So what we find then ultimately in the workplace is opportunity. Yes, it's not what we would like it to be. Yes, it is not what it one day will be. We will see a new heaven and a new earth. It will come when God is ready. And uh, that day will be exciting for all of us. Until that day, we have an opportunity to uh, seek the lost and proclaim the gospel so that God indeed might save some who we're connected to. We see in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this gospel is what we trust in. This gospel uh, is maybe dependent upon us in the workplace to be transmitted into the lives of those uh, who we're associated with. Who knows what God might do if we're willing to take risks, build relationships, and share the gospel with our fellow associates, our bosses, and our employees. So this is a summation then uh, of the workplace that we live in and the relationships and the testimonies and the opportunities that exist to us. We have a few discussion questions that we'll get to in a moment, but let's uh, just go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to impact us with what we've heard today uh, that he might be able to use us for his glory. Father, we thank you uh, for what you are doing in our lives today. Lord, we recognize that uh, the workplace is a place that provides the opportunity for redemption and reconciliation with you. We therefore, Lord, beseech you uh, to cause us to have a new attitude to our work and to our fellow workers, that you might cause us to look at the opportunities that we have every single day and do something with them, Lord, as you give us strength and opportunity. For it is in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen.